This is Docera Digest Podcast, breaking down health concepts. This podcast is brought to you by Docera Life Center. This innovative clinic is finding new solutions to the evolving challenges mankind faces in the 21st century. By utilizing cutting-edge technology and testing, they find root causes and also offer treatment with energy and nutrition. What is the mission? To dynamically change lives for the better while impacting families for generations. The information shared directly or indirectly in the Docera Digest podcast is not to be understood as or misconstrued as medical advice. This information is not a replacement for your current health provider who is acutely aware of your current health state and course of treatment. Any information shared about a product or service discussed by any host or guest on this podcast is not to be interpreted as a doctor-patient relationship. Well, welcome back to Docera Digest, where we like to take the complicated healthcare subjects and break them down or digest them. The important information so that you can understand the significance of the topic and how it applies to your health and to your life. Today, we're continuing our series on epigenetics. In this third episode of our series, I'll be discussing how we can either turn on or turn off our gene reactions or expressions. Dr. Luke will be talking about how what we eat affects the genome. And Dr. Craig we can, will be talking about how the words we speak and the frequencies that we, uh, ex- we are exposed to affects the genome. Dr. Kaiser will be talking about how certain diseases affect the genome and how the genome affects certain diseases. And then Dr. Caleb will conclude this episode discussing how stress and exercise affects the genome. So let me continue from our previous episode about epigenetics by restating that epigenetics is the study of how cells control gene activity without changing the DNA sequence. The term epigenetic describes factors that go beyond just the genetic code. When we talk about the genome, we're looking at what represents the complete set of the DNA within each cell. And all the modifications that regulate the activity or the expression of the genes in the cell is known as the epigenome. So then, epigenetics means that there are specific factors outside the human body that we will call the external environment, as well as the internal factors that cause changes or modifications to the epigenome of the DNA, which regulates whether some genes in the gene are turned on or turned off. Now, what does that really mean? Generally speaking, when we look at the genome, we are looking for specific aspects or a combination of several different circumstances that affect how our current and potential health. Number one, is a gene currently being expressed is either being on or being off. Some aspects of each cell are always turned on, whereas other parts of the genome in the cells are only turned on or off depending upon the reaction to the external and internal environments. Think of the immune system. If there is no infection, generally it's at rest. If there is an infection, it turns on to respond. Or consider the digestive process. If food is in there, then it's supposed to be turned on. If there is no food in there, then it's supposed to be turned off. The process of turning genes on and off is controlled by a system that we call the gene regulation system, and only a fraction of the genes turn on or off at any given time. In fact, most genes are repressed or turned off unless there's a demand for their services. What is interesting is that these modifications of the genome do not necessarily change the sequence of the DNA building blocks. Well, at least not at first. Number two. 
Something can turn on a good reaction or turn on a bad reaction, or as we will say, an expression. Depending upon many different factors regarding the external environment, this will affect the internal environment and depending upon specific epigenetic errors called single nucleotide polymorph polymorphisms or SNPs, the genome reacts to the stimuli in the best way that it can. For more information on the SNPs, go back to the first episode in this series. Now, if you have the appropriate good genes, you get a good reaction. If not, then you get a bad reaction. Once again, think about the immune system. If you have the appropriate genes and there is a fast, massive attack, your genome can respond and protect you. If you have multiple SNPs, then you will not be able to respond very fast and end up with a bad reaction like a sickness or disease. Conditions like metabolic disorders, degenerative disorders, autoimmune disorders, and even some cancers have been found to be related to epigenetic errors or a bad reaction. And then number three, something can turn off a good reaction or turn off a bad reaction or expression. This one's a lot more tricky or complicated, so let me explain it this way. Specific genes that affect a good expression of protection and production of the things that are good uses its processes to control the timing, the location, and the amount of gene reaction, as well as how which genes are going to be expressed. The process is carried out by a variety of different mechanisms, including through the regulatory proteins and any chemical modification of the genome. So this gene regulation is a key to the ability of a cell to respond to both external and internal environmental changes. When the demand load becomes too great for the gene to respond in the appropriate way, then the stressors eventually overpower the good reaction, and the body will eventually shut that system down because of the energy drain, meaning that if the demand load is greater than the body's ability to respond, it simply shuts the switch off and closes the door. The body is ultimately trying to conserve its energy to be able to extend its life, even if that is an altered life. A similar but opposite reaction occurs when it shuts off a bad reaction. Once again, this gene regulation is a key to the ability of a cell to respond to both external and internal environmental changes in a good way. Meaning that when the bad aspect of the external environment or internal environment changes for the good, think about stop smoking, changing your diet, increasing your exercise, then the demand load reduces and the gene react is able to overcome and shut off the bad reaction and eventually, or hopefully, repair the damage that has been done. So then how can genes be turned on or off in the cells? Our amazing body contains hundreds of different cell types, from immune cells to skin, scale, skin cells to neurons. And almost all of our cells contain the same DNA instructions. So why do they look so different and do such different jobs? Once again, the answer is because of gene regulation. First, we need to understand that gene regulation is a very important part of normal development. Gene regulation is the fundamental processes that a cell carries out in order to produce the instructions that will lead to specific proteins, and it is an essential function for which a lot of the cell's energy is devoted to. Some genes are turned on and off in different patterns during different developments. For example, there are specific genes that promote brain cells to look and act differently from bone cells, muscle cells, or other organs just like there are specific genes to produce blood cells versus organ cells. Each one of these gene regulations helps ensure that each cell produces only specific cell proteins that are necessary for its specific function. The patterns of epigenetic modification vary among the individuals, 
as well as in different tissues within that individual, and even in different cells within the specific tissues, as well as even at different ages of the cell and ages of the body. Gene regulation is how a cell controls which genes out of the many genes in its genome are either turned on or turned off. So gene regulation allows cells to react quickly to changes in the environment. Gene regulation can occur at any point during the gene expression, but most commonly occurs at the level of reaction from what we call the messenger RNA. Signals from either the external and internal environments or from e even from other cells can act activate specific proteins that are called transcription factors or we'll refer to them as reactionary processes. These proteins bind to regulatory regions of a gene and increase or decrease the level of reaction. By controlling the level of the transcription, this process can de determine when and how much protein product is made by a gene. This allows the cell's genome to regulate how it can fine-tune itself, how it respond to the external and internal environment stress, or the development of the cells or even its own repair. Because epigenetic changes help determine whether genes are turned on or off, they influence the production of protein in the cells. Environmental influences such as a person's diet, exposure to pollutants, stressors, emotional mental issues can impact the epigenome. Epigenetic modifications can be maintained from a cell-to-cell -cell communication as cells divide, and in some cases, these can even be inherited through the generations. A common type of epigenetic modification is called DNA methylation. Now, we discussed this in detail in the second episode of this series, but here's a quick recap so we can understand how this turns genes on or off. DNA methylation involves the attachment of small chemical groups called methyl groups to the DNA building blocks. When methyl groups are present on a gene, that gene is turned off or silenced, and no protein is produced from that gene. If you have specific SNPs here, then your genome does not have the ability to respond to the errors in the epigenetic process, which can cause a modification of the wrong gene or failure to add a chemical group to a particular gene, which can then lead to abnormal gene activity or even inactivity. Altered gene activity, include that caused by epigenetic errors, is a common cause of genetic disorders as well as development, developmental disorders. So we at Docere Life Center continue to explore the relationship between the genome and the chemical compounds that modify it. In particular, we're looking at the external and internal environments and their effects that the epigenetic modifications and errors have on gene function, protein production, and the overall human health. So what's the key takeaway? We each have a very unique and specific set of genes that are either turned on or off in either a good way or a bad way, and that combined with signals from either the external or internal environments along with the specific SNPs, determines our current state of health. And with that, let's turn this over to Dr. Luke so he can inform us about how external aspect of our diet can affect the genome. Dr. Luke? Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Ben. So really, I want to highlight just a few genes that have to do with diet that are extremely common in most of our patients, as I'm sure uh, the other doctors can attest to. And when we evaluate the genome report, there's, what, 87 pages that we generate in that report. So there's hundreds of different genes that we're looking at, but I want to highlight just four here. So the first one, it has to do with gluten. And again, as Dr. Bowers mentioned, the more variants there are in a specific gene, the greater likelihood that one has an issue with that particular gene or that particular problem that that could create. Um, however, again, it's not your destiny. So 
The first one has to do that I want to highlight is with gluten. So that's the HLA and the KIAA gene. And again, the more variants you have here, the greater likelihood that you might have an issue with gluten digestion. In other words, if someone presents to our office with, you know, a whole myriad of issues, but particularly gut issues, skin issues, neurological issues, respiratory issues, and they happen to have a high amount of variance within one of these genes or combination thereof, that could potentially mean that they're predisposed to not being able to break down gluten. And in that hypothetical patient, if they're consuming a lot of gluten, then it would behoove them to stop consuming gluten. So it's pretty straightforward. The next gene I wanted to talk about has to do with dairy consumption, which is the MCM6 gene. This gene is the only gene in the, gen the genetic report that the uh, you actually want to have variants here if you want to be able to break down dairy. So there's four potential variants within this gene. And if you have zero variants like yours truly, then that means you're likely lactose intolerant. Whereas if you have four out of the four variants, then it is likely that you can handle dairy just fine. Although we'll not get into how it's made or how it's processed in different countries and, and what have you. So uh, the next gene that I want to highlight that has actually been very surprising as I've begun to incorporate more of genetic testing into my practice is a, gen a gene that has to do with uh, mold or mycotoxin issues, tubers, and peanuts. And this gene evaluates whether or not one is likely to have a greater susceptibility, again, to mold or mycotoxin toxicity, uh, peanut allergies or sensitivities, and tuber sensitivities. So tubers being things that have roots and grow in the ground like potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, ginger, garlic, turmeric, etc. So again, staying pretty straightforward here, the more variants that one has here, the more it would behoove that person to you know, play around with those foods and pay close attention to whether or not they're causing any issues or sensitivities. Whereas if you're having a raging, you know, autoimmunity or gut issues, then it would make sense to eliminate those types of foods altogether and then begin to reintroduce them once, you know, you have your symptoms under control. And the last gene that I want to highlight has been very interesting and it hits close to home, particularly with regards to my wife um, and her genetic makeup. And that is the PON1 gene. So this last gene that is worth mentioning here because this evaluates whether or not one might be more susceptible to having a more difficult time detoxifying things like herbicides, insecticides, and pesticides. So take my wife, for instance. Um, with regards to her genetic makeup, when it comes to those gluten genes that I mentioned, the HLA and the KIAA gene, she had hardly any issues. I think she may have had two out of 10 variants, which is still enough to keep your eye on and, and you know limit the amount, but not enough to explain the symptoms that she was having. However, if you looked over to her PON1 gene, she had 100% of the variants here. So the take home is, is whenever my wife would consume gluten, she would have an extremely bad reaction. And this manifested alongside some parasitic infections. So it was kind of a double whammy. Um, this manifested as uh, what's called eosinophilic bronchitis, or in other words, an extremely uh, bad cough due to elevated histamine in the body because of some kind of sensitivity or, or allergy. So she had hardly any issues in the gluten, again, still enough, but her PON1 was 100%. So what could be going on here? Well, my working theory for her is that this does depend on what kind of gluten or rather where, because I think if she were to have gluten here in, in the States, depending on what kind it is, like if it's a generic store-bought one, she's going to have a harder time with that because that's going to be made with things like glyphosate and grow with herbicides, pesticides to preserve it. However, Lord willing, when we go to Europe or France or Italy or, or Spain or something like that one day, I think she'd be able to eat her heart out, you know, within reason. 
And so that's that's been one that's also been interesting here because my wife's not the only one that's that I've seen that in. So uh, again, uh, it, it's not when we're looking at these foods, it's not the gluten or the dairy or these tubers or whatever that are inherently evil. I mean, they did nothing wrong. Rather, we're evaluating the individual and how their body will respond to these given foods. So it's all about finding what works for that individual and their unique needs and then staying away from what could potentially be causing them harm. So that's all I got on food, you guys. You got anything to chime in? I'm not going to throw my wife under the bus. In front of <laughs> There's permission. There's permission. <laughs> Dr. Luke, I'd, I'd like to add to that. When, when you talked about your wife and the inflammatory reaction, and we understand that the liver process has to do about 60 to 90% of all inflammatory reactions, and up to 60% of that comes out through the lungs. Yep. There's your esophilic reactionary issue. And so it isn't so much, as you were saying, one specific thing, but it's an ultimate combination of things that will eventually hit a certain trigger that sets everything off, right? And Absolutely. so that's a, that's a thing that we have to look at in the epigenetic side of this is what combinations or variances at different times and different episodic events have that effect, right? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's also just to go to show that what we do at our clinic is not just look at the genetic makeup, but also looking out for things like stealth infections that also could be triggering that. So as we've covered ad nauseum. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Craig. Thanks, Dr. Luke. Well, as we're talking about this input output, uh, environmental factors on, on our DNA, I want to kind of ponder a question or a thought process here. Because mine started with the idea, can the DNA be reprogrammed by words and frequencies? And I'm going to talk about the words and frequencies here in a sec. But as we're talking about can it be reprogrammed, what exactly does that mean? Does that mean changed, rewritten, modified in the expression, mutated? What are we actually talking about here? We know that viruses and virions can get in and actually mutate and rewrite the gene and impact genetic expression. We also know that new technologies exist that are seeking to edit the genes even in utero to try to prevent a problem from occurring before a child's born. There have been multiple studies um, evaluating the effects on environmental factors. One study I looked up showed that social stress, which I know Dr. Caleb is going to talk about, can cause changes to the structure of the DNA with changes in the DNA methylation, as Dr. Ben talks about, and patterns of histone methylation and acetylation. And these changes can persist through the cell division into the daughter cells. So not only are we talking about even within yourself, but even as we pass that on as well. There was also a study done in 2012 that looked at meditation and found that different patterns of DNA activation, probably reflecting the epigenetic effects, during periods of self-reported higher states of consciousness occurred compared to their ordinary awareness. So what we also know or what's, what's a fact is that genome integrity is constantly challenged by endogenous and exogenous insults that cause DNA damage. To cope with these threats, cells have a surveillance mechanism known as the DNA damage response or DDR to repair any lesions. And although transcription has long been implicated into DNA repair, how transcriptional reprogramming is coordinated with this DDNR or DDR is just beginning to be understood. So there are, there are molecular mechanisms underlying major transcriptional events, including RNA polymer, polymerase 
yeah, two, stalling and transcriptional silencing, silencing and recovery, which occur in response to DNA damage. A whole lot of words that mean what? So here's the real thing. As, as the body adapts, as we have transcriptional adaption, contributes to the sensing and eliminating of DNA damage, and it can jeopardize gene, genome integrity when it goes awry. So as you said, when things work well, they work well. When they don't work well, they don't work well. What I really want to dive into is what about our words? What about our thoughts? How do those impact this genomic structure and expression? And I'm going to kind of reference back to the what we talked about in our energy uh, series. Everything ultimately is energy. Everything is ultimately frequency. And frequencies interact with each other. How do these frequencies interact? So... One of my favorite things that I found in doing my little part was there was a research study that they called Rockin' in the DNA, in which they found that audible sound stimulation leads to specific genetic responses. And the team leader said that these data also show that at least two mechanisms are involved, transcriptional control and RNA degradation, which are both key players in controlling how much proteins are made in the cell. So now specific sounds are impacting genetic expression and genetic function. There was another study that also showed that noise exposure induces stress hormones, including epinephrine, norepinephrine, and cortisol. And these stress hormones are able to damage the DNA. An inefficient DNA damage re response, or the DDR, would fail to repair damaged DNA, and this could further lead to excess DNA damage, cell death, and organs dysfunction. So what about our words? And here's kind of my thought processes. If we are talking about different frequencies, different words have different frequencies. So how is it that different words impact our cells differently? And I'm going to use a couple of words real quickly to explain my viewpoint or express my viewpoint. Let's take the word should and the word could. If you say the word should, what's the feeling that comes along with it? Typically, it's, a, it's going to create a guilt-based feeling. So, feelings are chemicals, and chemicals are produced by the cell, which is driven by the DNA. So, why is it that word creates a certain set of chemical response? Whereas, if I use the word could, that's more of a possibility-based word. That's more of an enjoyable feeling-based word, which means, which means it's, it's stimulating the production of different cells to produce different chemicals. Hey, Dr. Craig, let me add to that. Well, one could be based upon fear, if we say should, whereas could could be based upon pleasure. Right. And those are measurable within the DNA and within the reaction of that. Right. Let me take it a step further because here's something I was thinking about. So is it the specific frequency of the word or in a different language, you're not using the exact same word or vibration, are you? So it's what we associate with the vibration that's really the issue. So, exactly. So here's my question that I kind of want to leave with our audience. Okay, if our words, which are associated with our thoughts and feelings, can affect the DNA, how far can we go? How much of an impact can we have with our words? Are there any limits to it? And if there are, what are they based on? Is it just what we believe? that really drives our DNA expression. So with that, I'm going to pass it on to you and 
you can talk about what happens when it goes awry. All right. So I'm going to discuss uh, whether or not diseases are hiding in your genome. And I could go into a lot of depth on it, but should I, I guess, is a real question. So just don't feel guilty if you don't. <laughs> so there's a whole lot here. and There's a lot of lists of things. So I'm going to try not to bore you to death. I'm going to hit some highlights here. I'm kind of going to talk about some different areas where we can go through and dive into a few things here. So when we look at the, the genome, whenever we have a lower methylation functionality, it can contribute to many chronic diseases. Here's the first list. So, and again, these are... Top 10 killers, cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, adult neurological conditions. And we're talking a little bit more about that in the next episode. Autism, other spectrum disorders, chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm already getting tired about talking this list, talking about this list. <laughs> Alzheimer's disease, miscarriages, fertility problems, allergies, immune system, digestion problems, which Dr. Luke hit on there a little bit, mood and psychiatric disorders, which Dr. Craig gives us an example. Oh, I mean, uh, goes over. <laughs> aging and many more. All right. So let's talk about this. So we're looking at our genome here. Hey, what, why didn't you say which Ben gives us an example of on that one? Because well, we're still trying to figure that out. That's normal or not. <laughs> we're sure if it's abnormal or normal. So normally normal. Yeah. There you go. So when we're looking at it here, here's the good guys. So I'm going to give you a list of good guys and bad guys, white hats, black hats. Okay. Here's the things that we need more of to have better methylation. So a nutrient, a nutrient filled or food-based nutrition or diet, something that's going to be very healthy for us. Superoxide dismutase. Now, SOD or superoxide dismutase is what breaks down our free radicals, the things that cause inflammation in the body. Catalase breaks down hydrogen peroxide into water and oxygen, so it creates a clean system. Glutathione, our master antioxidant, we want more of that. SAMI, energy for the body. Same thing with NADH. Nitric oxide, vasodilator, helps with blood pressure control and many, many other functions. BH4 or tetrabiopterin are also known as for better health. And we have folate, choline, Nerf 2, not Nerf guns, Nerf 2. And we'll go into some of these things here. And chelating agents to help remove the heavy metals and toxicities from the body. So that's what we need to put into our body or we need to be able to create more of through our uh, gen genome. Now, here's the things that come in and create more of an issue. So the bad guys, these are things that reduce. So the first one we'll talk about is glutamate. So glutamate can lead to Alzheimer's disease, ALS, Parkinson's, Tourette's. I'm not going to give you an example of that right now. Vascular dementia, stroke, MS, hyperalgesia, anxiety, restlessness, and goes on and on and on. So glutamate stimulates the body and creates more stimulation of these things. So that becomes an issue. Then we have ammonia. So ammonia isn't just for cleaning windows. does a great job for that. But ammonia in your system is actually a nitrogen breakdown. And what happens is it can actually start causing all kinds of issues neurologically. So you have to be able to detoxify it properly. And that's where BH4, again, for better health, comes in. And that helps create our neurotransmitters, dopamine, which is our drive, motivation, memory, serotonin, which is happy, feel good, let's get things done, and nitric oxide and a lot of these other things that really helps to clean that up. So ammonia can be a – it's not a major issue, but it can accumulate to that point to become a major issue if you can't clear it out. So usually brain fog is associated with that. This is one of the first things we see there. Sulfates and sulfites, this happens with the CBS mutation, which Dr. Craig went over a little bit more last time, which then can also cause us to have issues with low dopamine, low serotonin, kidney damage, decreased glutathione uh, production, cardiovascular risk. So a whole lot here. And the list goes on and on. So I'm not going to go too far into that. 
The big one here I really want to talk about is when we start getting to superoxide-free radicals. So I'm going to go into this in a lot more depth next time in peroxynitrites. But superoxides are free radicals, or the reactive oxygen species, if you ever hear of it talked about in that order. But it's a normal uh, metabolic process. It's kind of our waste. It's kind of like the exhaust fumes that come out. But if we can't clear it out, it starts accumulating. It's like shutting the garage door while your car's running. It doesn't end up in a good situation. So external sources that we can actually cause more superoxides are x-rays, ozone, cigarette smoking, other air pollutants, industrial chemicals. All of these can lead to more superoxide production or exogenous um, factors that play into that versus endogenous. So superoxide-free radicals have been viewed as a likely major contributor to aging and damaging cells. So if you feel like you're aging fast, this is going to be a big part of that. Now we get to NOS uncoupling. And this is where it gets interesting because nitric oxide synthase is what creates nitric oxide, known as a miracle molecule. This helps vasodilate the blood vessels, helps our bodies to get better absorption of nutrition as the blood slows down, helps us excrete toxins out. It's a very big factor in a lot of different areas there. So that is, here's the problem with this one. This one uncouples, it allows a superoxide to bind to it. And then we end up with something really bad called peroxynitrite, which is a short-lived oxygen species. It's a potent inducer of cell death. Now you get this neurologically. I'm going to a lot more depth in the next episode, but this one really can uh, affect the mitochondria or the energy production in the cells. And it causes oxidation and nitration reactions. And this can lead to strokes, myocardial infarctions, chronic heart failure, diabetes, circulatory shock, chronic inflammatory diseases, cancer, and the list goes on and on. Now, the last thing I want to talk about here is homocysteine. So homocysteine is an intermediary um, byproduct between uh, the methionine pathway and the CBS pathway. So it should only be a temporary thing. Either it gets recycled back up to methionine or it goes down through transsulfuration. Now, when we start to have issues with this, homocysteine builds up, and there's something called the H-score. There's an interesting book about that that goes through all that. Now, when homocysteine gets high, it leads to hardening of the arteries, and so we get all kinds of um, circulatory issues, stroke, cardio, coronary artery disease, deep vein thrombosis, peripheral vascular disease, myocardial infarctions, cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, bone disease, all these different things that keep going. It goes into retinal and renal diseases. Anytime you have small vessels, so the heart, the eyes, the kidneys, all of these things are an issue. You get neural tube defects. So in gestation, there's some issues there as well. And it can lead to rheumatoid arthritis, Parkinson's, placental abruption, alcoholism. And those are kind of the big ones there. And so that's where these diseases can be hiding in your system based upon where we have issues here. Now, again, these aren't set in stone. We can do things about this. We can change the outcome of these things, but we have to be aware of what we're looking at, what we're dealing with, what's causing the underlying issue, and be able to treat that accordingly with proper nutrition, with the right words. If you want to, you don't have to. I mean, you should do that, or you could do that. I mean, that's, again. It's up to you. It depends on what language you use, I guess. So Exactly. And how you feel about that. So with that, I'm going to kick it over to Dr. Caleb to finish it off. All right. Thank you, Dr. Kyson. So if you joined us for our last series on stress and anxiety, then you likely remember that cortisol is one of the primary hormones associated with stress. It puts us into that fight or flight mode so we can either fight for life or run for life. 
Although we did discuss how some stress can actually be good and beneficial for us, we spent a lot more time talking about the negative and harmful effects of stress, especially chronic and severe stress. And also a lot of those can play into a lot of the other issues we were talking about even in this episode, dealing with your uh, ability to digest, ability to deal with or cope with um, social situations, social stresses, and even be able to help your immune system or hinder your immune system in that aspect. So high concentrations of cortisol can affect important DNA processes and can increase susceptibility to long-term psychological consequences. There was a study done at Salgrenska Academy in Sweden on patients with Cushing syndrome, which involves excessive production and release of the cortisol hormone. This often occurs due to a tumor in either the pituitary gland or the adrenal glands, which drive the cortisol pathways. Cushing syndrome is commonly characterized by abdominal obesity, fat deposits in the neck and face, diabetes, high blood pressure, as well as increased risk of anxiety, depression, cognitive impairment, and chronic fatigue syndrome. So it has been noted that even though when the tumors remove, physical symptoms often improve, the psychological issues typically remain. So in this study, what they did is they looked at the DNA methylation of the entire human genome in these patients and compared them with a control group. They discovered that all of the patients with Cushing's had significantly lower levels of DNA methylation compared to the control group. And again, this DNA methylation or acetylation with the histone groups and the heterochromatin is going to be a big part of what turns genes on or off or you know opens them up or closes them for whether they can be transcribed or read or expressed. So some of the DNA methylation changes were linked to long-term struggles with anxiety and depression. Some were linked to cortisol sensitivities and other were linked to brain development and plasticity. So how does cortisol actually affect DNA methylation? So cortisol regulates the transcription of several genes by activating glucocorticoid receptors by binding to them. These receptors are important for the regulation of many physiological processes in order to establish and maintain homeostasis or balance in the body. These activated receptors travel to the nucleus of the cell and activate or inhibit transcription of target genes, which account for 10 to 20% of the human genome. This activation or inhibition occurs by direct binding to glucocorticoid responsive elements of the DNA or by connecting with other transcription factors. So again, this leads to changes in either the methylation or the acetylation of the histone and the chromatin, which determines whether that portion of DNA is open or not. So abnormal or elevated glucocorticoid receptor activity on DNA expression can be linked to many types of conditions, including inflammatory diseases, autoimmune disorders, and various cancers. So we see that chronic stress leading to elevated levels of cortisol can have some pretty dynamic effects on your epigenetics and overall health. Now, the interesting thing is you might not be the only one affected by it either. As Dr. Craig was talking about earlier, how uh, certain genetic changes can be transferred to daughter cells or when the cells divide and they replicate, that that can be carried on in those. And that can also go into the sex hormones that are passed down to our children. So there was a really interesting study done on Holocaust survivors and their children by researcher Rachel Yehuda and her team at Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai regarding these intergenerational effects of trauma. They found that Holocaust survivors had lower levels of circulating cortisol than other Jewish adults of the same age, and those with PTSD had even lower levels. 
First, I kind of found that surprising because you would think they would have higher levels, not lower. But I think when you look at the um, prolonged starvation that they went through, I don't think they had enough building blocks to create the hormone that, or the cortisol hormone that they needed in those stress times. Now, the other interesting part was they were they didn't necessarily determine in that study why they had cor lower cortisol levels, but they noticed that the enzymes that break down cortisol were actually also lower, and this. Um, makes a lot more sense because reducing the enzyme activity reduces the rate that the cortisol breaks down, allowing for more free cortisol, which allows the body to store glucose and other metabolic fuels. Again, this helps when dealing with prolonged starvation. The interesting thing was the descendants of the Holocaust survivors who did not go through that experience also had lower cortisol levels, especially if the mother had PTSD and the younger the mother was when she went through that, the more likely or more pronounced this effect was. But when it came to the enzyme, they actually had higher than normal levels. Now, the researchers believe that the decrease in enzyme production in the mother would also decrease the amount of those enzymes present in the placenta, which would normally protect the baby from the mother's cortisol, so the baby had to create more enzymes to protect themselves. Now, these changes in the children means they have little available cortisol already, and then what they do have is getting broken down rapidly, which makes them more susceptible to uh, stress and especially PTSD and less adaptable to periods of prolonged starvation if they should experience that. So they were also able to make some other <clears throat> interesting observations and correlations between parents and their children, as well as grandparents and their grandchildren. If the father was severely underfed before puberty, the child was more protected from heart disease, whereas if the mother was severely underfed before puberty, the child had a greater risk of heart disease. If the paternal grandfather was severely underfed before puberty, then the grandchild was less likely to develop diabetes, whereas if the grandfather was overfed as a boy, the grandchild was more likely to die at a young age. So it's pretty interesting, some of these factors. And they also noticed that a little more gender specific, if the maternal grandmother smoked while pregnant, the grandson had a higher risk of being overweight. So pretty interesting factors that they were able to kind of associate and see that, you know, because of what the people went through in the Holocaust and the concentration camps, that carried on and affected their children down the line, it even to the grandchildren. To that. Uh in that in that same uh, study that they were researching, what they found was the reaction was in the placenta of the females, but not in the placenta of the males. And that was what was an interesting factor, how it separated out genetic gender specificities, right, that was going on, whether they were, uh, you know, in a starvation mode or whether they were not in a starvation mode. So I found that really interesting in that in that topic or that study that the placenta of the females was gender specific or different than the placenta of the male child. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely interesting to see all these different effects and how that kind of translate in different ways. Obviously there's still a lot to re to learn regarding how stress affects not only our genome, but the genome of our children and grandchildren. But it is very evident that chronic stress is very harmful to us and to our future generations. Right. So if you, if you are concerned about your stress levels, then I highly encourage you to check out our series on stress and anxiety, and especially the last two episodes where we discussed things that you can do on your own at home and ways that we can help in the clinic if you need it.
So one great way to manage and alleviate stress is to exercise. So as cortisol puts us into the fight or flight response, strength training and cardiovascular exercises are great great ways to use up excess cortisol that may be floating around in our blood. So obviously this will work in a contrary manner to stress and improve genetic stability as opposed to the instability we get with that chronic stress. So how can we maximize the genetic benefits of exercise? Although there seems to be benefits from both strength training and cardiovascular exercise, most studies have focused more on the cardiovascular form. There is some variability between studies, but for maximum benefits, we would need to perform 35 to 45 minutes of high-intensity exercise, which is about 70 to 80% of your maximum ability. This means if you're running or biking, it would need to be at an intensity that makes it difficult to hold a conversation. So studies on rodents also show that these benefits of exercise may also be passed to the offspring as well. Um, so we can either affect our children in a good way or bad way, depending on what we do or what we experience, right? So in one experiment, they placed male mice in two different environments, one with running wheels and mentally stimulating toys and the other with nothing. They found that the offspring of the fathers that were able to exercise and challenge their minds had enhanced learning abilities and brain cell communication and performed better in mazes and memory tasks compared to the offspring of the sedentary father. So as Dr. Kyson says often, we want to help our patients in such a dynamic way that it helps them as well as their children, grandchildren, and the generations that come after them. We have seen many negative conditions and diseases, or at least susceptibility to those conditions and diseases that can be passed genetically down the line, but wouldn't you prefer to pass on benefits that promote health instead? So in closing, I want to remind you that gene expression isn't guaranteed because those specific sections of the genome can either be turned on or off depending on many different types of factors. We already discussed how diet, words, frequencies, diseases, stress, and exercise can impact gene expression and regulation. I invite you to come back and join us next time as we talk more about environmental factors which can interfere or modify with genome expression. We will cover external environmental factors such as light, air, radiation, and uh, EMF fields. We will cover internal environmental factors such as the metabolism of, of our foods and presence or absence of essential minerals. We will talk about sympathetic and empathetic reactionary effects as well as how trauma and crisis experiences affect us. We also talk more about neuronal damage, inflammation, and so much more. So again, thanks for joining us today. Make sure you come back next time and see how environmental factors affect your genome. Thank you for listening to the Docera Digest podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. You can also find all the episodes and show notes over at doceralifecenter.com. While you're on the website, also be sure to check out the blog where you'll find videos and articles to help you proactively rebalance your health.